Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm honored to be joined by two terrific historians. Judkin Browning is professor and director of graduate studies in the Department of History at Appalachian State University and has written two military histories of the Civil War, Shifting Loyalties and the Seven Days Battle. Timothy Silver is also professor of history at Appalachian State University and also the author of two books, Mount Mitchell in the Black Mountains and A New Face on the Countryside, a foundational work in the field of environmental history. Now they have joined forces on a new book called An Environmental History of the Civil War. It came out back in April from the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Browning, Dr. Silver, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having us. Now, historians don't often co-author books. And so, Judkin, I wonder if you could tell us the story of how you two came to collaborate on this project and, and how you structured your work together. Sure. Well, uh, to defer a little bit to Tim as the elder of our partnership, um, it was really his idea. And Tim had been kicking around an idea of an environmental history of the Civil War for I'm not sure how long, a number of years. And uh, somewhere along the way, he realized that the Civil War literature was pretty vast and he would have a hard time wrapping his brain around it. And perhaps he was thinking of maybe I need to share this duty with somebody. And then uh, he and I took a fortuitous uh, trip to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 2011. We were both working on some elements of seven days battle uh, campaign. And we just talked about that campaign the whole ride up and back. And I'd like to think that maybe planted a bit of a seed in Tim's head that maybe I was the guy to work with on this. <laughs> and it was about a year later in 2012, when he came to me and asked, would I uh, like to co-author this with him? And I agreed to do it. And we actually went to a local uh, establishment here in Boone called the Boone Saloon. And we uh, sat down and at lunch, the first thing we did for the book, the first writing, if you will, was penciling out some uh, thematic ideas on a cocktail napkin at (laughs) at the table. And that's really sort of where the project started. And then when we started writing the book together, it wasn't a case of I would write chapter one and he would write chapter two, as I think many collaborations are. It was actually a case of typically we would we would meet and outline the chapter. We would uh, rent or not rent, but reserve a study carol in the library and we'd outline a chapter. And then I'd lay down the sort of base foundation of the chapter because I was pretty familiar with the chronology of the Civil War. And then I would give it to Tim and he would add some environmental layers and he would give it back and then I would give it back and we would do this quite a lot. And we ended up doing that for every single chapter. And I would, I'd like to think that there's not a paragraph in the book and probably very few sentences that don't have both of our fingerprints on them. 
Wow. Now let's get into it. And and the book is it's so dense. It's it's not at all dense at the level of prose. It's really crisply written. It comes in under 200 pages quite impressively. Um, but topically, you know, each paragraph in many cases could be an article or even a, a book itself. You you cover so much ground. And so in this conversation, we'll only scratch the surface for sure. But let's begin where you begin the book, um, exploring illness and disease. And you write that by the end of its first year, the war had already created a new and distinct pattern of microbial exchange. Tim, I wonder if you could tell us what that looked like and, and what, what the effects were of that. Sure. Um, what the Civil War does, maybe uh, more than anything, is put people in motion. And anytime you do that, you're going to have a disruption to the, to the microbial world. And uh, to, to simply state it, what happened uh, as a result of the Civil War is that um, some highly contagious sort of crowd diseases like smallpox and measles became more established in the South, while some environmental diseases, uh, notably uh, malaria, moved into areas of the North. And this is because of soldiers moving back and forth between the areas, civilians on the move. Um, that kind of thing. So it really shook up uh, the microbial world. Yeah, and, and then in the second chapter, you turn your attention to weather. And weather is sort of a tricky thing to figure out how to you know, put – thinking about causality with the war. Uh, in the book, you argue that the success of operations often hinged on chancy atmospheric conditions that fluctuate wildly and, and without warning. Uh, but you also warn that that counterfactual speculations about the weather's impact are, in your words, as dangerous as it is appealing. And so we should resist the urge to claim, you know, for instance, that McClellan's forces would have taken Richmond had it only rained a bit less. Um, so, Judkin, how do you think we should account for the role of weather in the war? Well, I mean, that's right. One of the things that uh, <clears throat> we wanted to be sort of very aware of is something the Civil War historians really don't like is this concept of environmental determinism which is that, you know, the environment decided the outcome and it really didn't matter which human was in command. Um, and that's, that's what we're arguing against in some ways. What happens is that humans make decisions, of course, based on the environmental realities. Sometimes humans make good decisions in response to the environment, you know, in response to rain or mud or something like, something like that. And sometimes humans uh, become paralyzed by it and, and make bad decisions. And so, that's what our whole it's as dangerous as it is appealing uh, comment was about, because what we try to point out is that um, while McClellan becomes cautious uh, during the seven days campaign because the rain slows him down and he wants to rely very, very heavily on his heavy artillery, which, of course, is hard to move in the mud. The Confederate uh, commanders, not just Robert E. Lee, but even earlier ones like John Magruder um, near Yorktown, the Confederate commanders make decisions that utilize the environment as well. And it just turns out that the Confederates made better decisions than the Union uh, generals in this particular campaign. And so we, we do stress that we should resist the urge to blame any outcome on the rain, the heat, the cold, the whatever, um, that humans are making decisions in this environment. I also want to point out uh, something that the reader would pick up on or the reader might notice and, and something I didn't address in question one is we decided with each of our themes uh, to cover one particular season or one particular section of the war and hence why we covered disease in 1861 because so many armies coming together. 
But we chose 1862 uh, as the seasons of war, the spring and summer of 1862 to discuss weather because it was such a, a major, uh, the, the atmospheric conditions in 1862 were so uh, profound that they did influence uh, multiple campaigns, certainly the Richmond campaign, but the flooding that occurs um, throughout much of the South around the Mississippi river, the Yazoo river, the Tennessee river, the Wachita river. I mean, it really, damages southern food production, which is going to have long-term consequences for the South. It certainly influences certain military campaigns. Uh, Fort Henry, for instance, in western Tennessee is basically submerged by the Tennessee River and so therefore can't offer any substantial defense. And then, of course, the rain that occurs around Richmond that really stymies McClellan and gives the Confederates an opportunity to Robert E. Lee to eventually launch uh, an attack on McClellan that causes him to retreat. But the weather was, it was important across the country and something that I think a lot of Civil War historians aren't terribly familiar with is that some of the worst uh, weather, some of the worst rain in U.S. history is occurring in California in 1862. They have a, a seriously catastrophic flood that turns the central valley of California into a 6,000 square mile inland sea. And between uh, the flooding and a later drought wipes out about half a million cattle in California. I mean, it's a really devastating event and one that neither Tim or I were really aware of until we started researching this book. And so it's one of those um, wonderful uh, opportunities of serendipity when you're researching something and (laughs) you end up learning something entirely new that you uh, we're completely unaware of. And so um, yeah, the the role of weather is one that is important, but it's also one that humans make decisions based on, you know, based on events and that the environment itself does not dictate the outcome, but how humans react to that environment is what leads to the outcome. Yeah, and your your mention of California really um, reminded me of of something that's kind of historiographically pretty cool about this book is that is that it really is in Megan Kate Nelson's title of her recent book. You know, it's really a three cornered war in the, in the way that that you tell it, especially in the early chapters. Here was that was that your intention going in, or did it really was it these stories that you uncovered that made you realize you needed to look broad more broadly beyond the Mississippi? Well, I think um, we have geographic scope. Go ahead, Tim. No, no, I was going to say that that we wanted um, at least the kind of book that I always envisioned was a a sort of a sweeping kind of history that would uh, cover a lot of ground. And, you know, also kind of uh, embody the the theme of environmental history, which is that it's impossible to understand people and their actions apart from the, the natural environment. And of course, that shifts depending on which kind of natural environment you're talking about. The deserts of New Mexico are different from the, you know, the forests of Tennessee. And uh, so that was kind of in the cards uh, from the first, but uh, Judkins quite right, the flood and the implications of that for the uh, Confederacy's effort to, to uh, move into the West, uh, you know, was uh, pretty new to us. And of course we found out Megan was working on it and uh, we're able to, <laughs> to sort of, uh, you know, stand on her shoulders a little bit. So. Yeah. Um, but it was always in the design to make this a, a kind of a, uh, for want of a better term, a, a sort of a, 
a quick, good read about the Civil War and the environment? Oh, you absolutely succeeded. So let's get back into it and look at look at chapter three, which is about food. And you you argued that food was a weapon of war in your phrase. And, and you showed this is true both at the level of the military and also domestic policy. So it's both what commanders are deciding to do, but also what's going on in, in the in the cabinets in, in D.C. and Richmond. Um, could you take us through an episode or two where we can really see food as a weapon of war? Uh, let's let's go to uh, Tim with that one. Um, yeah, well, of course, the, the sort of classic example of, of food as a weapon is the siege of Vicksburg, which uh, Judkins really probably a little bit better uh, equipped to talk about than, uh, than I am. But one of the other things we wanted to get to was uh, the impact of these large armies when they moved into areas. And the, the classic example of that is um, at Antietam, I mean, Sharpsburg, Maryland, where the Battle of Antietam was fought, was a small village, really of about 1,300 people before the battle. By the time both armies get there, uh, it has a population of over 50,000, which I believe is uh, roughly the population of Chicago at the time, which was, I think, the ninth largest city in the country and maybe the fastest growing. So one of the things we want to do in the food chapter was sort of look at what happens when you get these instant cities and Antietam's a really good example that the civilian population left. And when they came back, there's absolutely uh, no food to be had because the armies uh, have taken it. And then eventually when the armies moved on, it took the civilian population a really long time uh, to recover from that, to get back to anything resembling normal. And so it wasn't just a matter of sort of um, food being used as a weapon, but, uh, food became a problem for everybody who was anywhere near um, one of these major battles. And, uh, you know, we think that's one of the ways that the book really um, contributes some to the existing historiography. Uh, the Siege of Vicksburg and, you know, things like that are, are pretty well known. But the aftermath of these battles, particularly the effect on local <coughs> civilian populations, are um, something that hasn't been looked at a lot. Thanks. And then the next chapter turns to animals and you sketch out pretty distinct northern and southern livestock cultures that really had a material effect on on both sides war efforts. Um, what are some of those differences that we see? Well, I mean, the, the basic sort of most simplistic difference when you're talking about edible livestock like cattle or hogs are that southern farmers practice a, a free range form of agriculture in which um, they would just, you know, let their livestock roam the surrounding fields and woods and essentially <laughs> feed themselves, which was probably a, a, a higher quality of life for the livestock. But as somebody put it, it didn't lead to a tender cut of beef. Um, whereas on in the north, the livestock tended to be uh, pinned into pastures and so uh, were grazed uh, deliberately in that way. And so the biggest difference was that livestock, both cattle and hogs in the north, tended to be larger um, and have more meat at the time of slaughter. And so um, southerners had you had become used to uh, roaming livestock. There weren't any fence laws really in the south. And you, you had to sort of fence and protect your crops as opposed to pinning in your livestock. And it led to... Um, just a, a smaller sort of uh, 
pound per ratio of, of meat for each animal. And so when the Civil War comes along, the fact that the North has more livestock and the fact that North the, the North has heavier livestock means that they have more food that they can provide. And, of course, they have better processing centers uh, established and set up in Chicago and even particularly in Cincinnati, which earns the nickname Porkopolis because of the uh, number of pigs that it processes um, in the years before the war. And so going into the war, uh, the Union Army was going to benefit uh, much more from food production or the amount of food provided than Southern soldiers were going to. And another thing that people aren't perhaps intimately aware of is that many Southern farmers imported livestock. We we think of Southerners eating pork and cornbread at at every meal. Uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, when he toured the South, claimed that he had cornbread at every dining table from the coast to the mountains to the Mississippi River. And and there's some truth in that, but what people don't realize is that with the uh, attention to growing cash crops, particularly cotton and tobacco, then a lot of uh, Southern farmers found it more economical to just import beef from Northern states or import uh, pork from Northern states rather than waste the resources on growing their own. So when the war begins, of course, that trade stops. And so um, Southerners are immediately at a bit of a food disadvantage that a large supply of their meat has been cut off. So they can revert back to the supply of meat they already have. But as we just mentioned, it's providing 25% less meat per animal than is happening in the North. And so the South finds itself in a real, um, you know, in a real difficult situation uh, fairly early in the war. Um, and it continues throughout the war, of course. And the second thing I want to mention, sort of animal theme, is horses and mules. And I think one of the things that was really revealing uh, to both Tim and myself while researching this was the state of uh, livestock in terms of horses and mules in the United States. Um, Horses, of course, in in an army are the engines. I mean, they are the modern day uh, equivalent of mechanized warfare. You don't go anywhere or move anything uh, without a horse. I mean, there are railroads, of course, and there are riverboats, but, you know, Military campaigns don't always align along railroad tracks or rivers. And so horses pulled the wagons, horses carried the cavalry, horses carried the officers, horses did everything. And there were only about um, 7 million horses and mules in the United States in 1861 when the war broke out. And it was too late by the time the war broke out to create a breeding farm to raise military horses because Horses take about a 10-month gestation period to to be born, and then usually takes horses about four years to develop the necessary strength and maturity to be used for military service. So what that means is if both sides decided to establish a horse breeding farm for military (laughs) animals the day the war began, then those first horses would be ready the year after the war ended. So... (laughs) They basically had to make do with the number of horses and mules that were in the United States at the time. Well, of course, there were more in the North, and so they were going to have access to uh, more horses. And the North figures out uh, fairly effective procurement methods 
to purchase horses, sometimes in bulk and sometimes just from individual farmers. And the union quartermaster system during the course of the war becomes quite effective at acquiring horses and replacing lost horses in the Union Army, whereas, of course, the Confederacy is really going to struggle with this. And the bigger difference for the Confederacy is if you were a Union cavalry soldier, you just reported and the, the Union, uh, the federal government provided you with a horse. If you were a Confederate cavalry soldier, you were expected to bring your own horse. And um, the Confederacy doesn't have the procurement systems to provide horses. And so that's going to lead to... Uh, certainly it leads is going to lead to some abuse during the course of the, <laughs> during, during the course of the war. If a cavalry soldier uh, wants to go home for a little while and just sell his horse and then, then he can get a furlough to go home and find a new horse. And, um, and so the, the South is, is facing some real difficult issues in terms of procuring animals and certainly different difficult issues in terms of the amount of livestock to feed the army. And the final point I would make about the animals is, um, we think of illnesses devastating humans, and of course they did. But what tends to get either not discussed at all or sort of brushed under the rug in a sentence or two is that epidemic diseases just devastated the animal population as well during the war. Um, there were a variety of cattle fevers, particularly spread by ticks that damaged the cattle population. There was an incredibly devastating hog cholera epidemic that wiped out untold hundreds of thousands of hogs in both in both armies during the war. And then uh, again, for that engine motive purpose for the army, horse diseases, particularly Farsi and glanders, which was the most devastating, uh, highly contagious diseases that um, just annihilated large portions of the horse population in both the Northern and Southern armies. And, there's really no cure for glanders. If your horse comes down with it, the most humane thing you can do is is kill it and try to keep the disease spreading to healthy horses. And so the Civil War was a really difficult time to be an animal. <laughs> and there's that there's that fascinating moment there in, in the glanders. And again, you have to move through all this very quickly, but it's where after Bull Run, I believe both sides have a glanders outbreak among their their horses. And both each side blames the other for it. And there's this suspicion of what we would now call, you know, biological warfare, especially. And there's some of that in the first chapter on, on human diseases also, where there's this, you know, around Fort Pillow or things where there's this sense that maybe there's, you know, that the other side is, is trying to sneak these these germs and, and viruses into <laughs> our lines. Um, is there any evidence for, for any intentional spread of disease as a weapon of war? Well, the uh, the classic sort of example of that is um, something we cover in in the first chapter, where um, uh, there there was an effort to uh, spread disease into into Washington D.C. and uh, particularly uh, trying to use um, mosquito-borne uh, diseases like uh, uh, yellow fever. And uh, to to infect the North, and uh, there was this doctor, this Doctor Blackburn uh, from Kentucky, who was um, actually uh, some thought involved in the plot to assassinate Lincoln. Who sent a bunch of what he thought were infected blankets uh, to Washington D.C. and clothing, also, um, which he hoped people would get in Washington and then somehow start an, an outbreak of, of yellow fever. He, of course, was on the Confederate side. 
And, uh, you know, that didn't, didn't work. Um, obviously nobody knew what caused yellow fever. You need the mosquito vector to, to cause it. But there's definitely an effort at that. And, um, the suspicions about the animals, I think is also telling. And then the, uh, the stuff at Fort Pillow with smallpox, where a couple of prisoners from the North seem to have been sent down with, with smallpox and, you know, people are, it, whether it's happening or not, there's this sort of thing lurking in the background in the minds of both sides that, well, maybe they're going to unleash some sort of uh, a biological weapon on us. Um, so it's, it's definitely a part of the whole scenario. Uh, we didn't find, uh, you know, a lot of evidence that it was um, successful, you know, for either side, but it was definitely in the mix. That and in chapter, just, to, oh yeah, go just ahead. to interdict one other thing, Southerners believed that a lot of these illnesses that were associated with Southern was going to be a great advantage to them. And we mentioned in the book a lot of Southerners who think, oh, well, malaria and yellow fever will kill off the Northern soldiers. So, you know, let them come on down. Well, you know, <laughs> they won't be able to handle it. And of course, that turned out not to be as, a, as potent an ally for the South as they thought it would. Hmm. And, and chapter five might be the most unexpected for a general reader coming to what they you know, imagining what an environmental history of the war is going to look like, um, because it, you examine in that chapter death and disability. And you're in part building on Drew Faust's you know, pathbreaking book, This Republic of Suffering, on the topic. Um, but you add to that, that, that in your words, the war forced both combatants and civilians to confront death as an ecological event. Um, so what did that look like? And it looked pretty gross. So, Tim, could you tell us that? Sure. And I'll admit, you know, up front to having over the course of working on this book, developed a kind of macabre uh, fascination <laughs> With this topic, uh, drawn not only on uh, Drew Faust's uh, uh, work, but also Ellen Stroud's work in, in environmental history. And so I started asking myself, well, what happens when, you know, a person dies? And I found myself reading all this, you know, literature from places like the Body Farm over at uh, the University of Tennessee. And mm-hmm. it's actually a, a pretty interesting um, process I found. Um Almost a second somebody stops breathing or a soldier died on the battlefield and stopped breathing, um, enzymes almost immediately begin to consume the dead cells and it initiates decomposition and bacteria uh, feed on these cells, especially in the uh, gastrointestinal tract. And one of the more bizarre facets of this is that the the pancreas actually um, kind of digests itself. And within about two days, uh, you know, bodies begin to bloat and uh, uh, they release hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, methane, just a host of, of noxious gases. So the chemistry of this is, is really pretty interesting. And what, what fascinated me was, of course, all these things combine to create the smell, the, the, the scent of death, um, putrefaction. And... Um, <clears throat> What really fascinated me, though, was that uh, not just is, is this not just a human event, but all sorts of other organisms move in to live on on human uh, remains. You know, the most common of these being blowflies, maggots, that kind of thing. But there's a wide variety of wasps and other things that enter into it. And uh, so it's uh, kind of at that moment of death that we really see human beings as part of the natural world. And the the interesting thing about um, dead bodies, too, that we found out is that 
you know, dead bodies can, can contaminate the environment, but they don't in and of themselves really spread disease. But 19th century people did not know that, of course. And most of them subscribed to some sort of miasmatic theory of disease, that it was bad air and breathing bad air that caused diseases. So when a body started to stink, uh, the important thing was to get that body away from people as, as quickly as possible. And there were some really ingenious ways of doing that that came out of the war, inventions like body bags, um, sophisticated caskets, um, uh, other means that would uh, you know help sort of <clears throat> ameliorate the smell until bodies could be disposed of. And it, it just really kind of struck me for the first time that this is this 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 is people dealing with this as a kind of environmental um, ecological sort of event. It's not just a cultural event where someone dies and you mourn um, the loss of the person or have a religious service. You also have to confront the the ecology of death. And um, as I say, I developed you know a kind of a, a macabre fascination with. Uh, how different uh, people dealt with this. So it's, 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 it's really interesting. In fact, there's one guy, um, Thomas Holmes, who uh, was an embalmer, and uh, he actually would go get bodies off the battlefield and preserve them and then display them in uh, uh, shops and uh, places like Georgetown, Washington, D.C., and then people would come by and say, hey, look at my work, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great embalmer. And some set up shop out on the battlefield where they would also embalm bodies and um, I was, uh, you know, taken by uh, Ellen Stroud's comment in one of her articles that uh, bodies in death become commodities. And that was certainly true in the Civil War. They were harvested off the battlefield, processed and shipped to different locales, you know, usually to the north, um, just like any any sort of commodity. So I found that whole thing really fascinating and uh, to be part of sort of basic ecology, you know, basic uh, environmental uh, interaction between people and nature. Yeah, and it's a great photo you include of, of one of those you know, on on the battlefield demos of of embalming. Um, the book ends. Uh, the final chapter it covers terrain, which is sort of more you know, typical territory for military history. We know terrain is important in how how wars unfold. Um, and you write that the physical landscape usually dictated the strategy and the pace of the fighting, which I imagine most readers would expect to be true. Um, but then you you add and you emphasize that the physical landscape, as we take it, um, was really quote the product of long term interaction between people and nature. And so Judkin, as a military historian, you know what are some examples of of this, and why is it important to keep that in mind when we think about the terrain? Yeah, because as you say, uh, military historians are uh, very cognizant of terrain, and of course, every book on every military campaign talks about. You know, the high ground, where the rivers are, you know, the valleys, and you know, what sort of impediments there were that sort of dictated strategy. But what we uh, really look at as well is that um, a lot of these battlefields or places where fighting took place were not just sort of pristine wilderness that humans had never um, set foot on, and then boom, these armies show up and have to make the best of a bad situation. But actually, the physical landscape. Um, was really changed over uh, centuries of human inhabitation and um, or human habitation. <laughs> and so like just give a couple of examples. We'll talk about uh, the Battle of the Wilderness, which is familiar to a lot of readers. And, and the key distinguishing feature of the Battle of the Wilderness is the dense 
um, shrubs and foliage that dominated that field. And so when the armies come into that space and um, you know, General Grant is actually trying to march his army through it quickly so that he can get to the more open fields to the south in order to engage uh, Robert E. Lee's army. And Lee deliberately attacks Grant in that dense wilderness to try to limit Grant's numbers advantage and particularly his artillery advantage. And well, the wilderness itself, I mean, the reason it was the way it was, was because of what humans had done in that stretch of Virginia since at least the 1700s. It had originally been cleared and farmed for tobacco and other crops and then had been, once the soil became uh, less fertile, they had moved on and left it in this uh, second growth forest had grown up. And then uh, an iron furnace was established just a few miles away and they had cut over the land again. They had cut over that second growth forest in order to fuel the iron furnace. And so even 20 years before the Civil War broke out, the wilderness as we uh, know it today or as they knew it at the time of the war was essentially a, a cut over landscape with almost no trees on it whatsoever. But then that iron furnace went out of business in 1847 and it closed. And so nobody tended to the, the fields that had fueled the iron furnace anymore. And so the woods were allowed to grow up again and they had grown for 17 years. And the, what grows up are, and you have a lot of tree stumps, particularly of hardwood still there. And so you have these little suckers, as we call them, start growing up from the tree stumps. And it creates this really dense uh, melange of, of different types of, of trees that are growing up. But by the time the armies arrived in 1864, um, the forest had only been growing for 17 years, which means that practically no tree was taller than about 20 feet and no tree was thicker than three or four inches in diameter. And so for those who go to the wilderness battlefield today, and the National Park Service does a wonderful job of, of preserving uh, that and other Civil War battlefields, you may think that you're seeing what the soldiers saw at the time. But anybody who goes to the wilderness battlefield today sees 100-foot-tall trees, some of which are two and three feet in diameter. Um, and that's not what the soldiers saw at the time of, of the battle. They had a, a very low canopy of trees that were... Um, incredibly dense but very thin and so you couldn't see more than probably 20 or 30 yards and people are firing at you there is no tree to hide behind i mean it really was something to ratchet up the terror factor um pretty extremely another example would be uh something we talk about at the very beginning of our final chapter which is the campaign for saltville virginia which is in southwestern virginia and it's an area that's, you know, as its name implies, is sitting on uh, very large deposits of salt, which were in, in many ways as, as valuable as gold to the Confederacy late in the war because salt preserved meat, salt was needed for livestock, salt was needed to cure leather. Um, so salt was incredibly important and it was a, a vital asset to the Confederacy. And the Union uh, launches a campaign in the fall of 1864 to uh, destroy the salt works at Saltville. And the Union soldiers, when they get there, they find that they have to storm these uh, high hills that are completely denuded of any sort of cover whatsoever. There are no trees or anything on the hills. And so they're basically sitting ducks trying to attack these Confederate positions. 
And the reason there aren't any trees on the hills, the, re- the reason they don't have any more cover is because the saltville, uh, the salt furnaces required just a staggering amount of wood in order to fuel those furnaces. We actually have a, a stat in there to, uh, to show that the amount of wood that was needed to fuel the salt furnaces to make the amount of salt that the Confederacy produced during the war um, would be producing a cord of wood 180 mi- 181 miles long. It's like it required that much timber just to give yourself a sense of a visual of how much fuel was needed. So that meant basically all the trees in the surrounding area was just completely cut down. So by the time the, the Union gets there with the, you know, the best intentions of destroying the salt works, uh, they're turned back in their first foray in the fall of 1864 because uh, the landscape proves uh, forbidding and there's no uh, there's no real defensive cover for them. And so they have to abandon the campaign. They do eventually take the salt works later when the Confederates have to uh, remove troops and send them off to other threatened regions. But so those are a couple of examples of sort of interaction between people and nature sort of dictating uh, some of the battles. And, and the, the last one I would like to point out is one of the things we always also wanted to talk about was not just how terrain affected battles, but how battles reshaped terrain or landscapes. And we decided to use the city of Atlanta as an example of that. And people are very familiar with Sherman's campaign uh, to capture Atlanta. And what they're not familiar with, perhaps, is the the after effects of that campaign in which between Sherman's bombardment of the city of Atlanta, which he uh, basically launched an artillery bombardment of Atlanta for about a month in the summer of 1864, between all the Confederate soldiers and all the Union soldiers cutting down just about every tree in the greater environs of Atlanta to use as fortifications or fuel or something of, of that nature, when the campaign ends and the armies move on Atlanta, not just as physically devastated, but the wells are damaged. And more importantly, there's no tree cover uh, whatsoever in Atlanta and, you know, trees absorb rainwater and prevent erosion. They absorb wastewater. Um, so the trees provide a lot of uh, important, uh, uh, serve a lot of important uses. And, what we find is that Sherman's campaign really reshapes the residential geography of Atlanta in the years after the war. I mean, the city grows by leaps and bounds after the Civil War, but the uh, wealthier uh, white citizens take to the high ground in the, in the center of Atlanta, and the recently freed people who flock to Atlanta as well, they are shunted to the low-lying regions around the creeks and the rivers near Atlanta. Well, all the trees are gone, so there's no soaking up of much wastewater or sewage. And so all the sewage from the high ground where the whites are living goes down into the low-lying areas where the African-American population is living. And, of course, the hygiene problems that result from that and the, the illnesses that plague the, the freed people for decades after the Civil War. And then once the sort of high ground white area in the center of Atlanta is, is sort of saturated in population, the wealthier whites start looking for other places to live. And what, what dictates where they live is either high ground or good water, which even today is why uh, many of the suburbs of Atlanta have those features denoting them. Druid Hills, where Emory University is, was one of the first suburbs where people moved because it's high ground. 
Sandy Springs, Lithia Springs. I mean, these places have good water. And so really the, the greater geography of the city of Atlanta is, is shaped by that battle, by that military campaign in the summer of 1864. And it lasts with Atlanta for decades. With the exception of, of what you just said about Atlanta and what Tim earlier said about embalming technologies and casket technologies, for the, for the most part, each of these six chapters is is concerned with with trying and, and succeeding to prove that, that environmental factors matter a lot to the unfolding course of the war. But then at the end of the book, we get to this epilogue, and it's this powerhouse epilogue that, that uh, where you, you try to take on a much different and larger argument to make a, make a claim that in fact, the Civil War itself was a really important environmental event in the history of the nation. Um, and, and you cover tons of ground in a very short space to show all the different ways that, that we really can't understand the environmental history of the United States in the late 19th century and beyond without understanding what happened in these four years. And so, Tim, I wonder if you could tell us a couple of ways that, you know, that, that what happened during the war transformed 19th century life going forward. And then, and then even, you know, you, you both are living in North Carolina today. Are there ways you, you drive around and see the environmental legacies of the war around you? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. And, and that was one of my, um, you know, when I was, when I was thinking about the civil war and the environment, uh, or originally thinking about the book, um, you know, if you're a Southern historian and you're interested in the history of the South, sooner or later you end up at the civil war. I mean, it's (laughs) just the way it, just the way it works. And, um, so I had sort of, you know, put this off for, uh, most of my career because I, you know, I didn't want to get into the civil war, you know, Confederate flags and mint juleps and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, once I started thinking about the civil war as a kind of environmental event and an event that's crucial, uh, to the environmental history of the South and the country, then that, then I realized, you know, it has to be confronted. And so, you know, to answer your question about environmental legacies, we talked a little bit, um, about uh, some of the disease patterns that changed. And of course, that carried on well after the war um, <clears throat> in terms of uh, these diseases continuing to to uh, kind of ravage areas where they had not been present before. Uh, we talked about the livestock and the ways in which that changed. And the South never really recovered from the, the livestock devastation. One of the things that was amazing to me is that the, the hog population of the South really did not recover from the Civil War, and numbers get to where they were at you know, get to pre-war levels. Um, really, until the 1980s, when we started to get these factory farms in the South. So that was, you know, one long legacy. And then there are other things. Um, the uh, advent of veterinary medicine came right out of the war. Basically, there was no veterinary medicine uh, practiced before the war, but animals were so crucial that. In the aftermath, you've got the uh, uh, the advent of veterinary medicine, and Iowa State became the first public university uh, to have a veterinary uh, uh, medicine program. And uh, you know, probably the, the the one thing that was sort of a, another eureka moment for us is we discovered how closely connected the National Weather Service. Um, is to the war and that uh, the sort of weather prediction that we have today where we have weather stations around the country and we can monitor things. Um, all of that is, uh, is directly um, out of the Civil War. And uh, then finally, probably uh, the legacy that might be of, of most interest to environmental historians 
is right in the middle of some of the worst fighting, right in the middle of the Overland campaign. In fact, right about the time of the Battle of the Wilderness is when Lincoln signs the legislation that puts the Yosemite Valley uh, under the care of California. And of course, later became uh, Yosemite National Park. And it's shortly after the war, it's 1872, that Grant signs the legislation that creates Yellowstone National Park. And um, historians have, have kind of looked at this and argued that, you know, maybe what's happening here is that with the eastern landscape so completely devastated and torn apart by this awful cataclysm that Americans begin to look to the West and these more, in their minds, pristine landscapes as worthy of preservation. And so that the Civil War may be tied intricately to the uh, modern conservation movement. Now, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of work still to be done on that. Um, but one historian, Aaron Sachs, who's done some work on this, sort of sees a parallel between trees mutilated by the war and men mutilated by the war and uh, the stumps of humans and the stumps of nature that uh, that seems evident in the aftermath of, of the Civil War. And so the efforts to preserve the giant sequoias, of some of which, all of which I believe, or a number of them are named for Civil War generals, seems to play into that as well. So, um, you know, while there's still a lot of connections to be made, I think there's ample evidence that maybe the modern conservation movement, the national parks, some of these other things come right out of the out of the Civil War, and that makes it a crucially important environmental event. Well, the book is wonderful and, and it's and both because of the other work that it synthesizes and the claims it makes and, and, the, and the gaps it fills into the story. Um, it's I think it'll be an important kind of mile marker in this rather late developing field of, of environmental histories of the Civil War. I'd love to hear what, what having done all this work for eight years, um, how you both see the field going from here. You know, what, what, do, what would you like to see from future environmental studies of the war? And maybe you want to speak from your positions inside military history or environmental history. Maybe those don't really matter. Maybe the collaboration is really the key going forward. Judd, can you want to start us off? Sure. I mean, first I can uh, make a plug for collaboration. Uh, if nothing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it doesn't come naturally necessarily to historians. Um, you think of multiple authored pieces being typical of the sciences and not so much in history, but I think, uh, Tim had a great idea with this uh, collaboration bit, which is, you know, he was an environmental historian who was well-trained in those techniques, but, you know, didn't know the Civil War as much as someone who has studied the Civil War for 20 years would know it. And rather than think he could wing it, um, (laughs) Tim decided, you know, let's, let me bring in somebody who knows the war and let's, let's merge our two respective specialties into this. And, and I think it worked a lot better, quite frankly, than probably he, either he or I thought it would um, going in. And, and so I would just make a plug to encourage other scholars out there to not be afraid to reach across the aisle and either, you know, ask somebody from the history discipline uh, who does some uh, genre that you aren't as familiar with, but want to investigate further or even reach across into other disciplines in the sciences. And because we certainly benefited from the assistance of geologists and 
health and exercise scientists and uh, forestry people um, who all guided us um, in our work. And so I would just sort of make that uh, play that I know being a historian tends to be a sort of solitary existence, but it doesn't have to be. Um, And the reason I make that play uh, or make that suggestion is because as I say, I mean, I've been, I had been teaching the civil war for a decade before I started writing this book with Tim and I've changed every single one of my lectures um, on the civil war based on what I've learned in researching this book. It just forced me to ask questions that I may never have thought of asking before until we started working on this book. And it really has opened my eyes to the civil war in a way that I trained as a military and a social historian had never looked at it before. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would, I would echo that, um, to, to tell a quick story, uh, the reason I decided to have Judd can join me or the moment I decided to have him join or try to get him to join in on the book was, um, I was actually reading, uh, an article on chestnut blight in a botany journal. And I noticed that the author had called in a geneticist to help him out. And, um, somehow that was sort of a slap in the face. Like, you know, well, why don't I go get somebody <laughs> who knows the civil war, you know, and, and, uh, will help me out with this thing. And of course, uh, when I got brought Jekin on board and he's talking about troop rosters and all these great sources, and I'm still trying to figure out how to pronounce Chickamauga, you know, um, <laughs> but, uh, but he, he knew that uh, literature so well. And then I was able to kind of talk about, you know, the questions that we wanted to ask. So I, I think it worked out well, um, as to where it goes from here. Oh, geez, you know, there's, there's so much stuff. Um, I mean, the civil war is the most written about event in American history for a reason. And, uh, there's a lot of, there's just so many di- uh, different ways to go. Um, I, one of the things I think that, uh, that, that really could stand more uh, research is the thing I mentioned about the civilian population, how they were affected by these armies moving in. We only just scratched the surface on some of the environmental results of parking, you know, 50,000 people on a rural landscape. And, um, in effect, having an instant city with all the problems of sewage and trash and disease and the kind of things that come with a city that lacks the infrastructure to deal with those sorts of problems. And I, I just think there's huge you know, potential there for uh, people to do more. And uh, that that's one place just, you know, off the top of my head that I think things could go in, a, in an interesting direction. Animals provide, you know, just another whole area in which you can you can uh, do a lot more research. And I think that um, if you start to think about these kind of things, these, these military endeavors as environmental events, then it just opens up a whole range of possibilities. And so I think, you know, hopefully what people will do with this book is say, well, you know, that's interesting. Let me go see what I can find out about that. And, um, and, you know, take it from there. Exactly. I would definitely second that, that, you know, our book leaves of necessity, lots of gaps, of course, because we look at each theme within a certain season of the war. And I just think um, I would, I'm excited and would love to see you know, other people uh, take this, you know, young scholars, uh, you know, say, well, I kind of like the idea that they're starting with here, but they didn't go deep enough. Let me go uh, dig deeper and see what other stones I can overturn here. And, we unabashedly 
were doing a synthesis and using the work of some great scholars that have done uh, some preliminary work. You mentioned Megan Kate Nelson earlier, and we certainly um, utilize her work, uh, the work of medical historian Margaret Humphreys. Um, Aaron Stewart Malden uh, wrote a, a great book about the sort of environmental effects of agriculture in the South from 1840 to 1880. We borrowed Previ- previous guest on the show. <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. You know, the book is good too. And uh, <laughs> who's who done some wonderful work on tobacco cultivation. So they're just, the list is endless. We, we could just name people all day long, but um, there's still so much more that can be done. And we just hope that, you know, our book, if anything, uh, gets people excited about it and, and makes them want to go and ask their own questions about some of these topics and others that we never even had a chance to address. In a lesson on environmental contingency that neither of you needed, uh, your book was published a month into a global pandemic. Um, and so I'm sure that has uh, forestalled all the, all the opportunities you've had to kind of get this out out to people and, and visit universities and battlefields and, and bookstores to, to share this exciting work with folks. Um, hopefully that will all resume on in when we get past this things with knocking on wood over here. Um, but uh, but at some point in the future, uh, what what uh, do you have a sense of what projects you're going to turn your attention to next? Uh, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting any younger and, (laughs) and I've been around, you know, I I started environmental history when I had to go knock on the door of the the botanist there at at William and Mary and nobody, nobody'd ever heard of environmental history. So I've been doing this a long time and I must've told uh, Judkin about 30 times, you know, in the course of writing the book, that's going to be my swan song. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I keep I keep getting these things <laughs> that come to my mind. Uh, you know, probably um, uh, some of the things that that spring from this. And I'm particularly interested in this connection with the conservation movement and how we how we might you know try to flesh that out a little bit. So that may be something I work on. I don't know about another book, but you know, maybe an essay or something uh, down the road uh, on the COVID thing. Yeah, that's been. Uh, that's been sort of a, a, a curse and a blessing in a way. We don't have to convince people anymore of the viability of disease as a research topic, you know. That, <laughs> and and people have told us, you know, well, I started reading your book, but it opens with a measles epidemic. Uh, <laughs> not sure I want to read this, but but it's also kind of uh, kept us, as you um, as you say, from getting out and and uh, you know pressing the flesh a little bit and, and, and talking about the book. But uh, I, I think it just underscores again. I mean, Americans have gotten a huge lesson here in how closely connected we are to the natural world. And um, I've always said that if there are any environmental historians left standing after this pandemic, the world, the world has a big "I told you so" coming uh, from from all of us. So you know, I, I think it, it's it's made people more aware, but it has you know it's restricted our our uh, getting out. In fact. Uh, these podcasts are great because they, you know, allow us to talk about the book and, and uh, get out to a lot of people without actually having to go in person. Yeah. To Tim's point, his wife uh, read uh, the book in draft form and, and was very encouraging, told Tim, Oh, it reads really good. My wife uh, started reading the first chapter and said she couldn't get through it. She felt ill. So, you know, <laughs> That warning's out there. She read the book, but she had a hard time struggling through chapter one because of all the diseases. <laughs> so wait till she gets to the death. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, um, 
So in, in terms of future projects, I mean, I think the environment will always sort of now be uh, a part of the questions that I ask of any future work that I do. I mean, I think researching this book has made me think of the war much more holistically in that sense. I mean, the next project I'm really working on is uh, more of a reverberations of battle angle and sort of how one battle affects the men and the families and the communities they come from for decades or even generations after that battle. And um, I'm using a couple of regiments that annihilate each other the first day of Gettysburg to, to try to tell that story of the effects of a battle. And I hadn't previously thought of that really having much of an environmental uh, footprint, but I think the questions I'm going to ask of that project now certainly are going to have some environmental ones, especially in terms of long-term health repercussions because of their experience and things of that nature. And so this book has really been uh, enlightening for me. The research for this book, much less the writing of it, has opened me up to just a whole host of other sources that I wasn't previously familiar with. The book, again, is An Environmental History of the Civil War. Its authors are, and my guests have been, Judkin Browning and Timothy Silver. It's out now from the University of North Carolina Press, so go grab your copy. Tim, Judkin, thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.